This past fall in the adult uh, formation classes on Sunday morning, our committee asked several of our staff and pastors to share the writers who've influenced them in the formation of their faith. I was glad to be a part of that series, and I entitled my presentation, How I Fell in Love with the Bible and Who Helped Me. The presentation's available online, but I wanted to expand and share it with the larger congregation. So I'm in the process of reworking it into three sermons that I will give during this season of Easter. Today's is entitled, How I Fell in Love with the Bible. On May 14th, I'll preach, Who Helped Me Fall in Love with the Bible? And then on May 21st, I'll preach, How You Can Fall in Love with the Bible. The passage behind each of these sermons will be the one that appears in the lectionary for today, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This passage is set on the third day after the resurrection of Christ. A disciple named Cleopas, who appears nowhere else in the Gospels, joins an unnamed disciple walking the eight miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. These two disciples are aware that Christ has been crucified. Some of their group have seen the empty tomb and have been told by the angel that Christ is risen. But these two are doubtful. Luke says that as they walk, they remain looking sad. A stranger approaches them. They do not recognize him, but Luke tells us, the readers, that this stranger is Jesus. The disciples question the stranger concerning how he could not know of the violent events that have unfolded in Jerusalem, but he begins to speak to them about how the Messiah must suffer and die in order to enter into his glory. Luke then tells us, Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, the stranger interprets to them all the things about himself in the scriptures. This is where we join the story midway through chapter 24, verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us on the road while he was opening the scriptures to us? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may our hearts burn within us. Amen. When all is said and done, the greatest source of my faith is this mysterious book 
that we all love at points, are intimidated by at other points, and try to master only to find that it masters us in the best sense of the word master. My love for scripture did not begin as an adolescent infatuation, nor was it love at first sight. As many of you know, I grew up in a family in Memphis in one of its early suburbs of Germantown. While my childhood church was one of the largest Presbyterian churches in the denomination, when we moved to the suburbs, we joined a small, white-framed, family-oriented Presbyterian church of about 200 members. Neither of my parents were ministers, but alongside sports and school, they made sure that church was a central pillar of our lives. And it was a positive experience for me. Mainly fellowship dinners, work days in the churchyard, delivering Thanksgiving meals to underprivileged families out in the country, and most of all, an annual all-church family camp each Labor Day weekend. What I experienced in the church of my childhood and youth was warmth, a sense of community, the smell of coffee in Fellowship Hall, and the taste of donuts and hot chocolate on cool fall mornings at the Rustic Retreat Center where Family Camp met. It was all about community. But it was not directly about the Bible. I did not remember enough of the preaching or enough of what I was taught in Sunday school to have developed a feeling one way or another about this book that became so important to me and has played such an essential role in Judaism and Christianity for thousands of years, has been central to the canon of Western literature, and has been instrumental in the building of empires positively and negatively across the world. In high school, I was in an environment in which many of the other kids were from prominent influential families. At the same time, they had strong evangelical religious experiences, often coupled with a literal interpretation of Scripture. Though I was not well-schooled in the Bible as some of them were, I had a deep sense that my own church life was important to me. And I was not particularly appreciative of the way some of my fellow students seemed to use the Bible to challenge the legitimacy of my own faith. And I had an intuitive sense that the way they sometimes interpreted passages in the Bible just didn't seem right. One day, a similarly inclined friend of mine found a verse, Second Peter 3.16, which reads as follows. There are some things in Paul's letters hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Now, here was a verse in the Bible from Peter, whom I knew to be a significant biblical character, challenging other verses written by Paul, another significant biblical character. 
This verse set me on a path thinking that there is more to the Bible than many of the religious people around me understood. And that stuck with me. It was the beginning of my heart burning within me, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, seeking a deeper meaning within the scriptures. The way the Bible would soon come to life to me and lead me to fall in love with it came when I was introduced to viewing it as narrative. Let me illustrate by I by what by what I mean, let me illustrate what I mean by that word by telling you a few stories which are of course narrative. During my middle and high school years as I've related before, the civil rights movement was in full force in the south. And I'd been drawn to it emotionally and intellectually around the time Dr. Martin Luther King was killed, Jr. was killed in my city. Three or four years after his death, I was given a cassette tape. I would stop and demonstrate that for many of you here, but it would take too much time. But just trust me, it's old technology. It's somewhere this side of papyrus, okay? Uh, <laughs> But I was given a cassette tape of a series of sermons that had been given at the Montreat Youth Conference in North Carolina, which I had not attended. I knew the speaker, Dr. Robert Walkup, to be an associate pastor at Idlewild Presbyterian Church in Memphis, whose youth group and worship services I sometimes attended, really just for a romantic reason. Now, Dr. Walkup had flowing white hair and a deep, raspy voice, like the well-known senator from Illinois at the time, Everett Dirksen. I knew that Dr. Walkup had been forced to resign from a pulpit in a southern state because of his support of civil rights. The three sermons he preached at Montreat were on the parable of the prodigal son. He told the story with humor and power, related it to the civil rights movement that was so present among the lives of the thousand or so youth, nearly all white, who were in attendance at the conference. He preached the parable in the way that high school youth could feel it. I can still remember some of the phrases from this sermon which ring in my ear today whenever I hear this parable. When the son had blown all his inheritance and was left having to eat the same food with which he was feeding the pigs in the only job he had ever taken in his life, the son began to be in want. When he returned home, not because he was penitent, but because he was hungry. All the way back on this walk home, he was rehearsing what Dr. Walkup called his pitiful little memorized speech that he hoped would convince his father to bring him home. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. When the older brother, now having to work two jobs in the field since his younger brother had left, 
learned that his father was throwing a party to welcome his younger brother home, said, all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me so much as a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. To which Dr. Walkup added, as if he had any. <laughs> Those three sermons on a scratchy cassette tape opened the scriptures to me as stories, as narratives. That like a good play or a movie or a novel or a short story or a tale we might hear sitting at our grandmother's feet drew me in, spun me around and deposited me on the other side a moved, if not changed, person. Hearing those three sermons was the most thorough and dramatic experience up to that time of my heart burning within me. And it came through someone opening the scriptures to me. A few months after hearing Dr. Walkup's sermons, I heard dynamic African-American preachers at Montreat in person including the Presbyterian minister, Dr. Joseph Roberts, who succeeded Dr. Martin Luther King Sr. at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Their preaching, much of it narrative, had the same or a similar impact on me. And it began a 20 or so year period of my listening to great African-American preachers in our history. Once again, my heart was burning within me. Coupled with my love of the community of the church and my experience of its pastoral care after the death of my father around this time, this exposure to the narrative use of scripture in preaching was a capstone to an internal sense that I should seek to become a minister. I listened to that internal sense. And after finishing college, felt strongly about leaving the South, mainly because I felt I would return to it. So I enrolled at Union Theological Seminary in New York when I was 21. My first semester, I took a preaching course. It was led by Dr. James Forbes, who had joined the Union faculty the same year that I enrolled, 1976. He was in his late 30s at the time and was fast becoming one of the premier African-American preachers in our nation. The product of a Pentecostal background with a strong traditional education at Union, he was warm and engaging in the pulpit, in the classroom, and in person. He had a wonderful sermon on Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, and a legendary sermon named Hannah Rose. Both were narrative, a hallmark of African-American preaching and oral culture. The class had about 60 students in it. Most were already practicing pastors, black or Puerto Rican, serving in storefront churches throughout New York. On a Friday night, Jim Forbes invited all of us in the class to a tradition in the black church known as a preach-in where we would show up with our Bibles, be given a passage, 
than stand in line to preach a spontaneous sermon of five minutes. I remember him saying to me as we walked out, Young man, you don't ever have to worry about going hungry. You'll always be able to make your living preaching. Now, I later learned that he said that to nearly everyone. (laughs) But what could feel better to a 21-year-old kid from the South living in New York than to hear that? If the sermons of Bob Walkup and Jim Forbes taught me the power of individual stories as narratives within the Bible... My introductory Old Testament class taught by Dr. George Landis and my introductory theology class taught by Dr. Christopher Morse taught me the overarching narrative within the Bible, the narrative that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Those of you who've taken my classes at Westminster have heard me recite this narrative. It begins with creation, and then the fall, three chapters later, away from the people and earth that God created us to be. After the Tower of Babel, when God looks out over the creation, and there are all these confused and dispersed nations that can't even speak to each other, God makes a decision to choose one of those nations, the people of Israel through Abraham and Sarah, Not because they're superior, not because they've done anything, but just for God to have a group through whom to work to redeem all the other nations of the world. So God promises them land and promises them that they'll become a nation by having descendants. And he tells them that they're blessed. Yes, they're blessed to be called, but more importantly, they're blessed to be a blessing, blessed to call on to pass on this promise of redemption to all the nations of the world. After a while, with a lot of problems, having descendants and then with descendants, they end out enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up Moses to be both their liberator and their lawgiver, and Moses gives them the law as an identity, religious, national, personal, a way of life that is good and coherent. They enter the land. And once they do, they wrestle with what every society wrestles. What kind of leadership will we have? Their initial leaders are just tribal warriors who win a victory and will be crowned as leader for a while. But that form of leadership only lasts about 200 years. And it's a low point in Israel's history at which time they begin to look around at all the other nations of the world and they say, they've all got kings, we want a king too. God doesn't think that's the greatest idea in the world, but he allows them to have their king. And so we get Saul and David and Solomon. And after these three kings, there's not a good succession plan. There's internal family strife. The nation divides in two. And after a while... Both sides are defeated militarily and carried off into exile. A few years later, they return, rebuild the temple. And during this period of kingship and exile, there has arisen something in Israel, a new kind of leadership called the prophets. 
The prophets are always there to try to call the people of Israel back to obedience to the law, back to their best selves. The prophets also help them form a sort of underlying hope that maybe the only way things can be solved is with a Messiah for God to come and be among us to set things right. The New Testament opens with four accounts of the pre-existence, life, death, resurrection, gift of the Spirit, and promised return of this Messiah, Jesus Christ. The early Christian movement begins within Judaism among Jewish people who look at Jesus and say, yes, he's the Messiah, which is the minority of such people. But after a while, the movement itself realizes that they are not simply blessed, but blessed to be a blessing, to pass on this news of redemption to all the nations of the world. And that's what triggers the Apostle Paul to become the missionary to the Greco-Roman world. And Christianity moves out of its base in Judaism and indeed spreads out to all the nations of the world. We would not be sitting here as heirs of Christianity if that had not happened. The book then ends with the promised return of Christ in glory, envisioned in the strange and frightening and yet beautiful book of Revelation of a new heavens and a new earth in which God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. As the Bible is full of hundreds, thousands of individual narratives, individual stories, so also are each of these stories a part of this overall larger narrative of creation, fall, and redemption. Every biblical passage we read, every sermon we hear, every biblical story we know fits somewhere into this narrative. I know we experience them as disconnected stories that we just happen to hear on a given Sunday. They're kind of like stars in the sky. They fall down and we don't know where they came from other than, well, they're in the universe somewhere. But they fit together more than we realize. The Old and New Testament classes I teach every year at Westminster are aimed at giving us this overarching narrative within which the individual stories we know from childhood or hear in Sunday morning sermons can come to life. When we have this larger story, we can develop over time, and it takes time, some sense of where the individual stories fit. It's all a part of what can make our hearts burn within us, like the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. When we experience such an opening of the scriptures in a way that fits our personality, I believe that we are experiencing the presence of God, perhaps for the first time, perhaps in a new light, but in some way, God touching and changing our lives 
for the good. Every time I step into this pulpit, every time I enter a classroom, my hope is that something will happen that leads you to feel your hearts burning within. It's a tall order, and I know it doesn't always happen. But it is the least that I can do for you as your pastor. And in all honesty, it's really all I can do as your pastor. And it is one of the joys of my life to do it with you and for you in this congregation. Amen.